This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is maybe the second, but it kind of kicks off a series that I'm doing. The last episode, I maybe did an introduction, sharing a little personal experience, kind of a teaser into some of the things maybe we'll be talking about, and just gave you a personal example in my life of how, you know, sometimes the past has a way of showing up in the present, and that's okay. You can work through it. You can still have a happy, healthy life. And every once in a while, that past still creeps up and pops up its head and says, hey, here's something to address. So this episode, I wanted to start talking about how we develop a self. Now, I may end up splitting what I want to talk about into two different episodes about this. So I might do a first section kind of talking about how the self is developed, what happens when the self isn't developed or what that how we don't develop a self versus we do develop a self and how important it is to have a self, a functional self on board online for just our functioning. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, I think in the next episode, because I think I'll probably get talking about that and it'll take up, you know, an hour or so. I mean, I can take up an hour pretty easy. And so I think probably the next episode we'll do a little bit more into if things didn't go well enough for you and there wasn't a functional self developed, how do we go back and do that now? Like how do we do that now that we're already an adult, that we've already had some dysfunction showing from the lack of a functional self? How do we get into a more functional self? What does healing look like? What options are there? What is the hope? That type of stuff. Then I'll do a third episode and I really want to talk about self-care. I'm still trying to think about, should I have a guest on talking about self-care? You know, I could have one of the therapists that I work with on um, as we talk about self-care and and that perspective. I could also, you know, reach out to my larger CSAT community. I mean, there's a lot of people I could certainly reach out to. I might even have a guest on and then do one wrap-up session. I haven't figured it all out, but I will be figuring it out over the next several weeks. So I wanted to talk today, like I said, just about developing a self. And I think if you hear my my printer is deciding to clean itself, clean whatever the heads or something. And I tried to maybe cancel it or not. Let's not do that right now when I hit record. It's, you know, around nine o'clock at night. So it's a little bit. It's been it's been a day. I'm just saying it's a Monday And it's been a Monday. You know, my husband found out today he unexpectedly has to go out of town tomorrow, probably needs to drive, wasn't able to rent a car. So there was that. We're moving into our Salt Lake location. So that's exciting. Uh, As we were moving in, getting everything situated, realized the AC was not working. I think it's a, you know, control issue. Like you have to use the, the AC and the heater are all app controlled. And I have to say it's one of the least user-friendly apps I've ever come across. And it was not a helpful tutorial into how to set the things up for your temperature controls. And so had some issues with that today and we'll be getting it fixed. You know, the, the guy who does all the HOA for the building is going to come get that fixed tomorrow. So just kind of ran into that, had to go to the office. Unexpectedly, I typically work from home on Mondays. I get the podcast recorded typically in the later afternoon. Then my daughter's friend who is living with us, has been living with us, texted, oh, around four o'clock saying her car was broken down on the interstate and needed, she thought it was just maybe a dead battery. It broke down a couple of weeks ago and was an alternator. She got that fixed. So she's like, I think I just need to get jumped but that is not the case. So I think my husband ran out to help her. And it's like I said, it's going on 8 9 o'clock. They're still on the side of the freeway waiting for the tow truck to arrive. And he 
just recently called and said, okay, the tow truck's close. But just, it's been one of those Mondays. So getting to this a little bit later than usual and let's hope I have my thoughts together, but I apologize if in the background you're hearing the whirling and humming of my printer that's decided to clean itself and I don't know how to stop that. Anyway, on to our topic. So one of the things, you know, when I'm talking about developing a self, well, let me, let me back up. Okay, so I'm gonna back up and I'm just gonna talk for a minute about some of the ways that I conceptualize the therapeutic process, or at least how I conceptualize and approach therapy as, as the clinician. So I think for a lot of my clients, the clients that I tend to work with, one of the things I would say brings them in. Now, often there is a what we call in the field a precipitating event, right? There's something that put them over the edge, right? There is a straw that broke the camel's back and got them to reach out and ask for therapy. Now, sometimes maybe they've been to therapy, you know, a decade earlier or when they were younger and they thought it was a great experience. And so now something else is happening in their life and they think, oh, well, I went to therapy before and I remember that it was a helpful process. And so I'll reach out and find a therapist and go to therapy again, which is great when that happens, right? It's great when they've been to therapy and it was a positive experience. But I think one of the things whatever they are coming in with, like here is the presenting problem, right? Here's what brings me in, which is something I typically am asking on the first session. Like what brings you to be reaching out and scheduling with a therapist right now? You know, not that you've been thinking about it for six months. Like why did you call me last week and schedule an appointment? Or why did you call our clinic last week and try to get an appointment with a therapist? And so that's, you know, something that we want to know, like what kind of broke you open in a way that you decided to reach out for help. And those can be, you know, some powerful questions for clients to think about or for us to process in the therapy room. But I think also I would say this is rarely spoken or I don't know that clients have this awareness. And as a new therapist, I probably didn't have this awareness either. But I think for most people coming to therapy, one of the things they want to understand is like, why am I the way that I am? And is that helpful? Is it not helpful? Can it be different? Is this just personality? Is this just genetics? Am I just stuck with this way of being? That type of stuff. I, I think underlying that people are unhappy in some area, right? Patrick Carnes talks about being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Sure, I, I get clients who I would say are sick and tired of being sick and tired. I also get clients who, you know, maybe they're not, they don't know what they're sick and tired of or they just, they just don't understand what's happening. But maybe they see some patterns. Maybe, you know, when I start pointing out some patterns that I'm observing as they tell me their story, they can pretty quickly go, oh yeah, you're right. There are some patterns here but they're not fully understanding what that means. Is that just the way that I am? Is that destiny? Is that just what my life is going to look like? So I, I think that's one of the things that often clients are coming into therapy looking for, right? And hopefully also some support in doing that deeper examination of the self. So when I'm talking with clients about a self, right? You know, when I was a new therapist, I was working with court-ordered teens and the most of them are ordered for substance addiction or substance use issues they'd gotten in trouble with. Um, some were court ordered because of delinquency at school. They just weren't attending, different things like that. But they were court ordered for therapy. And so, you know, the, the program we were, you know, working with the teens with would talk about, one of the things that we would talk about with them is self-esteem. And at the time, so this is, you know, the mid nineties, self-esteem was kind of this really big buzzword, maybe like vulnerability is today, where everybody's kind of talking about authenticity and being your authentic self and vulnerability. And I, I think there's a lot of people talking about it that don't really practice it, but it's, you know, very trendy. It's very, just a popular buzzword right now. Well, back in the mid 90s, self-esteem was really big and 
you know, we were all talking about improving self-esteem and not just in my field, but just in general, people were kind of focused on how to help kids have good self-esteem, how to, how to improve self-esteem, that type of stuff. And one of the things that I was, you know, kind of thinking to myself, even as a newer therapist, like, well, why don't we have good self-esteem and what goes into developing good self-esteem? And one of the things that I would say to clients that I worked with or as a co-facilitator of groups that I was a part of is I would say, I think self-esteem is not something that just externally people can give you. Now, I would add to that now and say, I think initially we're born reliant or dependent on others to reflect to us an image of ourselves. You know, some of my staff that I've done supervision with, you know, they'll frequently remind me, like I've heard you say, I don't even know how many times that like babies aren't born not liking themselves or babies aren't born suicidal. Babies aren't born depressed. Babies aren't born sabotaging themselves or you know we're not it naturally we are not born with this belief that we're a burden to others right infants just cry when they need something and they're hoping that somebody responds in a timely manner to their need right so i think at young ages we are dependent on others to reflect our worth to reflect our value that tells us something about ourselves which is maybe a foundation for self-esteem to build self-esteem on. But self-esteem, just like the word itself, right? I have to have it. Other people can say all these great things about me, but if I don't believe that myself, other people saying those things are not going to get me to believe that I'm worthy or valuable or funny or whatever it is, you know, smart, whatever. And so I also think, you know, that self-esteem just really requires us to know ourself and to be able to esteem that, good, bad, or otherwise, right? I have to know my strengths. I have to know the areas where I need further development. I have to know what my trigger points are. I have to know how I respond. Maybe if I'm sleepy or irritable or stressed, something like that. I have to know myself and bring some affirmation to that that just says like, this is who I am and all of this is acceptable. Not just the strengths or not just the pleasant parts, but all the parts of me. And, you know, I I think if we cannot esteem ourselves, then some of those negative parts of ourselves or some of those areas of development can become really big issues in which that is how the person sees themselves. They see themselves through what they are not or how they are incapable or where they don't measure up to other people. So... You know, even back in the 90s, we were kind of looking at and talking about self-esteem. That's how we worded it back then. But we're really looking at this development of self. Now, I often tell my clients, we actually use the self a lot, you know, and we may not consciously have to use it, right? But we're using the self a lot We to determine, you know, what decisions we make. I think the self, how we see ourselves informs decisions we make. It informs how we prioritize things. I think, you know, it tells us something about our likes and dislikes. Again, I I think likes and dislikes are just that. You can like something, you can not like something. It, It says to me, it says less about whatever the thing is and more about the person for the most part, right? If, you know, somebody's favorite snack, right, is salty versus sweet, there's not a right or wrong to that. There's not one that is preferred over the other, but it says something about you. And I don't know that it really says a lot about you, right? But to know yourself, if somebody says, oh, hey, you know, what can I get you for your birthday? Or if they just get to know you, they know that this is one of your favorite treats, right? I had a a friend earlier this year, I was leaving on a trip and, you know, I've been trying to reduce, I mean, this has been, I don't know, probably I feel like a decades long ordeal, probably not a decade, but maybe eight years when my youngest daughter was diagnosed with celiacs. And so we've just been, you know, working to reduce gluten, create meals that have less gluten, stuff like that. Um, She doesn't have super bad reactivity to it, which actually is probably a bad thing because uh, she's not as committed to being gluten-free and to making that a priority as much as I was committed to her being gluten-free. And so 
you know, it's just something. And from time to time, I'll just kind of for, you know, eight weeks, 10 weeks, sometimes three months, I'll just go off of all gluten as a personal choice and just kind of, I I do feel like cleansing my body of that for a little bit is helpful. And so I was in that period of time where I was not eating any gluten. And, you know, my friend had said like, hey, what, I wanted to get you something, uh, just a snack or something as you're going on this trip. But I don't really know, I don't, when I think of you, I don't know what you like to eat. Like as a snack, I don't know that about you. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know that about me, right? I said, well, you know, normally I would say Twizzler nibs. I don't like Twizzlers licorice, but I do love those nibs. But I'm like, but I'm kind of trying to be gluten-free. So nibs are out. And, and so I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know what I would, what I would say I like. I, I have some, you know, there's different things that I like, but yeah, she was just like, I don't, what I'm thinking of you, I'm like, I don't know what Jackie's favorite treat is. She actually found me at Whole Foods. She found me some, they're similar to the nibs. They're actually pretty tasty and they're a gluten-free licorice. And I had no idea they existed until she found them and dropped them off at my house and was like, hey, I found these, which is such a good friend, right? So I, I think it informs big things in our life, but it also just informs some of the things that make us unique or the thing that people know about us, right? If they, if they think of us, what are the things that they, that they can that conjure up to them, right? What are the things that come to mind when they think about you as a person or me as a person, right? Well, that has to do with the self too. You know, sometimes I, I think about, you know, I haven't for several years, but you know, when my kids were younger and playing with kids in the neighborhood, I would go into a lot of people's houses, just trying to track my kids down, get them to come home, that type of stuff. And, you know, I'd always go into somebody's house and I'd be like, oh, you know, maybe I I might say it out loud. Like, oh, I love the way your house is decorated. I might just think it to myself though. I might just think like, oh, I like the way they pulled this together and it's, it's very nicely decorated. I probably would not decorate that way, but I felt like it told me something about them. Again, what did it tell me? I don't know. But when I would go into somebody's house, I felt like it gave me a sense of them. Now, obviously when you're, you know, young, starting out, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. Oh, I got this couch online that, you know, was pretty cheap and in good shape. And I got this from my parents who were, you know, replacing something. So I'm not talking about that. Like we were kind of in our middle stage of life where, you know, you could actually decorate a house and kind of have it come together. And likewise, when people would come to my house, often they would be like, your house just feels like you. I I mean, I knew what they meant, right? But I was like, okay, I'm not... (laughs) Not sure what you're saying by that, but like, yes, my house, I feel like is a reflection of me. I think it should be, right? And, or at least for me, that's what works well is, you know, the space that I live, the space that I spend a lot of time, the space where a lot of happy moments happen for me. Yeah, I, I want that to be a reflection of me. And so that says something, right? Sometimes I'll say to my clients, like, just, you know, what's your style? Like, how do you figure out what clothes you buy or what, how you decorate things or, you know, what you purchase and what you don't purchase, that type of stuff. Like all of that says something about you or is a reflection of the self. And like I was saying, we use that self often as functional adults. So it is important to have, you know, that functional self. Now I was talking with a client couple weeks ago and she was saying, you know, she's about my age and was kind of becoming aware of, I mean, I, this wasn't a new awareness. I don't think for her, I think she has had an awareness that like, there are things I do well. And then there's these other things that I just kind of freeze and I don't even know how to do it. And I, I'm old enough. I should be able to do these things. And I just get anxiety. I freeze. I avoid, I don't know what that's about. So we've been looking at that and we've been digging and she didn't really know where that came from or, you know, was that a personality trait or is that changeable? Is that, what is that? And so we've been working on that for, you know, a little over a year maybe. And she was starting to understand maybe where 
some things went awry for her, right? And some of the things, maybe some of her mom's insecurities then were transferred to her as insecurities. And mom didn't necessarily know how to encourage her or let her learn, you know, possibly fail, but how to rise from that failure. And instead, the message she got, sometimes directly, often, you know, maybe unspoken was just like, let's just avoid that. Let's just not do that. Let's just skip school that day, that type of stuff. And so I think, you know, we also, I think we learn a lot by making mistakes. I think we learn a lot by figuring out how to come back from mistakes or how to get through that, how to course correct, how to rise again. All those things tell us something about the self, right? So I I think many of those things that life hands us are important in developing a self. And a lot of that is happening when we're young, we're impressionable. We don't know how to handle those things. And so we are somewhat still dependent on those around us to teach us that, to guide us through that process, to have those conversations with us, you know, to esteem us and to affirm us as a person. Now, I think at the core of a functional self, you know, sometimes in therapy, we talk about these deep attachment questions that, that many clients in therapy, you know, those questions aren't quite answered or, you know, maybe they're hoping this is the answer, but they don't know that. Like that's not settled into the core of who they are. And these deep attachment questions include things like, am I lovable? Am I worthy? Do I matter? Am I acceptable as I am, right? Imperfect. Will others show up for me? Can I lean on other people? Will others be there for me when I need them? Those types of attachment questions. You know, I tell my clients those questions are really answered or the foundation for answering those questions are built in the first four years of life. You know, I've had clients who are like, well, most of that time we're not even verbal. I'm like, I know, right? It's a sense. It's a felt sense that we have being in the presence of those primary caregivers who are in our lives in the first four years of our life. And they're not like sitting down and having a conversation and saying, hey, I need you to know you're lovable, you matter, you're acceptable, I'm going to be there for you. Sometimes those words matter, right? But all of us have had that experience where we are going to trust how we feel with that person much more than what they say to us. And so I think that's very similar. I think that's where the foundation is laid for developing a functional sense of self. And it's in those moments where, again, I mean, if you've had kids or been around kids in that age range, you know, zero to four, pretty high demand. They can be impulsive. You know, they have a lot of needs. And how do we show up for them, right? Do we show up in a way that says to them, you're a burden? Do we show up for them in a way that says, I would rather do something else. I don't really want to be here. Or can we, you know, take a moment and breathe and enter and show up in a way that says, I wouldn't rather do anything else than just spend this time with you. Whatever that looks like, right? Whatever that young infant toddler is doing. Can we actually show up for them in a way that feels good to them, that feels safe, that feels attached and attuned. I think that's where that foundation is laid. Now, again, we're going to talk about if that didn't happen, you know, what's plan B or what's plan C or what's plan F for going back and getting what is missing. We may not get to that in this episode, but we will get to that in this series. So I I think for people who have that, right, if you were to ask people, if you have people in your life that you think of and and you're like, "I, I think they're pretty securely attached. I think they have a pretty good sense of self and like they're very functional, right? Like things that get to me don't seem to get to them as much as they do to me. Not in a dismissive or uncaring or maybe narcissistic way, but it just doesn't really change how they see themselves or they don't get scared like what does that mean if I fail the test what does that mean about me am I a bad person right and I 
and beating myself up and I'm critical and harsh with myself. Maybe, you know, we just notice things that maybe how we respond versus how they respond. And we, we think, yeah, I, I think they maybe have more of that sense of self. Also, I think that sense of self starts with safety. So maybe things were just more safe for them, which means they can have more attunement. Uh, there's less chaos. There's less uh, inconsistency. And so, you know, if, if you were to ask them, like, when did you realize that you were a good person? You know, sometimes they would probably just say, I, I don't know, I've just always known that about myself. Like, I don't think I'm perfect, right? But I've just always known that, like, I'm a good person. Now, I will usually, when I'm having conversations about this with clients, I will say, now, if we could rewind, if you and I could rewind the story of their life as though it's a movie and we could watch it through, you know, because I didn't have those deep attachment questions answered in a good way when I was growing up. Many of my clients don't either. And so I'm like, you and I, if we were watching their life, we could probably point out more so than they could like, oh, that's a big deal. Oh, that happened. That probably helped them. We could probably sit and point out these things because we would notice things that were happening for them that did not happen for us. And, you know, if we pointed it out to them and be like, wow, that's a really big deal. They may be like, I mean, I, I recall that like, yeah, that's good. Like that felt good, but they may not actually see the value in that and understand what, you know, maybe you and I looking at that, why we're seeing that and why that stands out to us as so important and so foundational in their development. You know, the other thing I usually will talk about with clients is I think it's actually pretty passive, right? I mean, maybe, maybe there's some things that really are big events and standout events but I've worked with enough clients who, you know, scored the winning touchdown, the high school championship game, or have had huge success in their life. And it didn't necessarily translate into, I am a good person. Now, for some, it probably did, right? But I think it depends on what is the background that that event is happening within, right? So if, if I'm not really getting my attachment needs met, and then a big thing happens and I perform well and I'm the hero or heroine and I'm the star of the show, then yeah, I might think, okay, well, my value is now based on my performance and I have to keep performing well. Or, you know, let's say I fumbled and I didn't score the winning touchdown and maybe that pattern repeats. And I think, yeah, at the critical moment, I'll fumble and I'm going to fail and I repeat that pattern. And that's how I view myself versus somebody who those deep attachment questions have answers and the answers are consistent with the primary people in their life. Maybe they fumble, maybe they score. Either way, it doesn't change how the people in their life see them. You know, they show up for them. If they didn't score, they show up for them and they're like, hey, I just want you to know I love you and that was hard and let's talk about it and let's. Let's, I want to know how you're feeling about that and what you're thinking about yourself in a situation like that. I think if they do succeed, right? I think also it's like, yeah, you're important, but that's not news. That's not something in our family we didn't already see. And we love you and we couldn't love you more. And we're so proud and we're happy that it worked out well, right? Sometimes that's talent and luck, but we don't see your worth being connected to your performance. And so... If you score the winning touchdown, great. That's a great day and we're so proud. We're celebrating with you. And if you don't, we're still there and we're still celebrating you and we're still loving you. You know, some of those consistencies that are, like I said, I think it's somewhat passive. You know, as I've, you know, I've got four young adults that I've raised and when I look back over their life, I mean, sure, there are things that I think I look back on and think I did that well, or my husband did that well, or I'm still doing that well, or my husband's still doing that well. But I also can think of so many coaches that they had in their life who 
either also did it well and in a passive way, you know, I was sharing with a client, like even at those critical ages, you know, I would say the tween, young teen ages, you know, several of my girls played soccer competitively and it's an age where, you know, they're learning the game and they're able to kind of think it through in the moment. And if they had a good coach, that coach allowed them to do that, right? So maybe they make a play and it doesn't work. But I would hear the coach on the sideline saying, I liked it. I liked it. Good thought. Good thought. Because the coach was wanting them to gain some independence, right? And not just be a good team because the coach from the sideline was telling them everything to do. That's not developing a self. And so coaches, you know, kind of quiet on the sideline. You know, they often asked us as parents to be quiet, which I was never really a super loud sport parent anyway. But they would say, like, we're going to let the girls play the game. The girls are the ones on the field and they're the ones who have to play the game. And I want them thinking. I want them strategizing. I want them figuring out how to do it. I'll work with them on stuff in practice. But in the game, I want them playing the game, right? And each game is going to be different and they have to learn how to adapt to each game and develop some strategy, which I thought was wonderful. I thought that was great. And that was another way, you know, somebody outside of the parent system or the family system was saying to them, what you think, what you do matters, whether it works out or not. I'm telling you, I see what you're thinking. I like that. I approve of that. I like that plan, right? And again, that's maybe a, another passive way of doing that where I don't know for my kids that that stood out as much as it did to me as a parent watching that and seeing the value in having a coach who thought like that and coached like that. You know, we had some coaches who didn't, who were like, I will tell you every play to make. And I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, we'll finish out this season on the team, but we might want to make a switch after this because that's not really the coaching style that I agree with. And overall, we were blessed with some amazing coaches for my daughters that played soccer who I know had a significant impact on them developing a sense of self. I, so I will often say to clients, I don't think anybody arrives at those young adult years with a fully functional sense of self. I, I just don't think it's possible, right? The first 18 to 21 years of life are so different than any other decade or time period or two decades of our life that we're not going to fully arrive at those young adult years with a solid sense of self. But if parenting goes well enough, right? And we don't have to be perfect parents to do it well enough. If parenting goes well enough, then we as individuals will arrive at those young adult years with a pretty good foundation on then which to continuing to, to develop that sense of self so that eventually with time, we have a solid sense of self. Now, you know, if, if you listen to the episodes on... Pete Walker's book, The Tao of Fully Feeling, he talked about in there that there's something around age 30 where individuals start to, are able to maybe in their development be more introspective, kind of take some inventory, look at their life, do some assessing, do some adjusting, that type of stuff that prior to 30, he said, you know, we don't, we don't typically see that. Now I will say, I've, I mean, I've worked with teens. I don't work with a lot of teens now. I have teens, I have young adults. I think some of them are capable of doing it earlier. I think some are required to do it maybe earlier, depending on uh, how rough their circumstances are or how you know much their parents and just the company around them were stimulating ideas and thoughts and reflections and and just you know getting people, individuals to think. But I can see where he's coming from, where there is something around 30. You know, I, th I think when you're young, you think 30 is pretty old. And maybe that has part of why at 30, we're able to kind of be a little bit more introspective and look at ourselves and 
understand our story and how we got to where we are and what shaped that, good, bad, or otherwise. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying 18 to 21. Maybe it's more late, late 20s, early 30s, you know? I mean, we do know that the brain isn't fully developed until, you know, late 20s, early 30s. So I think there's some substance behind his theory that the 30 is kind of when somebody, a self or an individual is able to start to uh, have a different experience and become more reflective and self-aware. But if there is good enough parenting, right, I, th- I think we have a foundation on which then to continue to build. I, the other thing I think sometimes our 20s were so busy, maybe somehow chasing life, right? That's a lot of times where people get married for the first time in, the, in their 20s or um, here in Utah, sometimes at 18, 19. I think, you know, typically if you're starting kids or developing a career and trying to get some advancing in the careers, you know, the 20 and even into the 30s can be pretty busy decades simply trying to build up a life, right? And just put in kind of the scaffolding on which we think is going to support and we're going to, you know, just live according to the scaffolding we're building. Now, I don't know that that always happens, but I think, you know, sometimes we're, we're focused on that, like I'm going to get here and then I'm going to do this. And I think sometimes by 30, we're like, oh, I was going to be further along or I was going to be here. I was going to be doing that. And that time went by fast. And so, you know, I, I think there's also a reason that starts maybe in the 30s. I think when I was doing that podcast episode, I think I mentioned that several years ago, I haven't looked at it recently, but several years ago, I was looking at the average age a person uh, comes to therapy and it was 38. So a little bit after 30, but you know, not super young. So the other thing that we know is not having a self, right? So a lot of times I'll, I'll explain that process to clients. So I'll talk about how that happens. If good enough parenting happens, what we might be seeing that is pretty critical or pivotal in that person developing a self and arriving at the young adult years with a foundation on which to build. Now, most of my clients will be like, I don't have that. And I'm like, right, I, yes. Right, that's why you're working with me, right? And I didn't have that either. I did not have that either. So I'm like, right, right, yes. And it's always interesting to me, you know, so often when I when we have that conversation, usually they'll pop out a story that I've never heard. And I might be working with them for three years, over three years, and we'll have a conversation like that. And they'll say like, I, I don't have that foundation. And I may say, I know, I know. I didn't either. And then they'll launch into some story. Did I ever tell you? And they'll go into some story. And it always surprises me. It shouldn't. But it always surprises me because I'm like, I've never heard this story. Not that in three years I could hear every story. But I think it just having that conversation and having some of that awareness, maybe some permission that like that's not your fault. That's not, that doesn't say something about you as a person, right, usually opens up a story that they haven't given me before. I find that interesting. But we also know that not having a functional sense of self in adulthood is actually very distressing psychologically to an individual. And, you know, there are some diagnoses, mental health diagnoses, that are in the DSM, right, that we we use and, you know, need to be addressed in therapy. And usually it's a longer term therapy process where, I mean, this is probably not, if I were doing a summary of, you know, what I've read in the articles about these particular types of diagnoses, the summary for me would be this person doesn't have a solid sense of self or a functional sense of self. They are aware that they do not have a self and it is very distressing to them when they have that awareness. And that's when we see kind of this disorder come on board or we see that manifest, right? That can happen a lot. Um, some of these diagnoses may be uh, borderline personality disorder, right? Which is that intense fear of abandonment. And we know that that's not, when we're talking about a personality disorder, that's not saying 
that that was inherent or that this is genetic. That's who this person is. We know that there was some severe trauma in the young life of that person that really has been debilitating for them. And it profoundly impacted their ability to develop a sense of self, that fear of being left, that fear of being abandoned got in the way of them developing a sense of self. And it usually can wreak havoc in some of their relationships. You know, it it usually when I have worked, that's not a specialty I have, but I've worked with borderline personality disorder clients before. And they usually have some awareness that this can be uh, taxing on the people in their life that it can be difficult and ultimately they they don't like it they don't want this you know it's not their fault but they're still left with the impact of their trauma and you know if they're coming to therapy I mean that can be 10 15 year process um, to kind of rework that for the individual A- another one histrionic personality disorder right the summary I would give of that one is also somebody who has an awareness that they do not have a functional or a solid sense of self. But instead of being organized around that high fear of abandonment, with histrionic personality disorder, it's organized around that need for attention. Now, if you think about it, young kids have a high need for attention and that we shouldn't shame them for needing that attention. An attuned parent or a parent who is doing a good enough job gives their attention to the child as often as needed, right? So, you know, when I will talk about this, I'll say, I mean, if you've ever been around a young child, let's let's say three, four, even five, right? And they're like, mom, mom, watch, watch, watch me climb up the slide and go down. And they climb up the slide and they go down and you clap and you're like, oh, you're such a big kid. Like, I'm so proud of you, right? And then they're like, watch, watch, watch. And they're doing it for the 20th time, right? And you've done the exact same thing. You've watched, you've clapped, you've celebrated, and they're wanting you to do it again. That's a high need for attention. And that's not wrong. That's not a bad thing. We don't need to tell them, like, I've already watched you a lot of times. Now stop. I I mean, sometimes, yeah, it might be a little annoying, right? But that's about attuning to that child And that child is starting to move out of the shadow of the mother, right? Or the shadow of that primary caretaker. And they're starting to explore their world a little bit, but still need to know that that primary caretaker is watching, is letting them move out of that shadow with their permission and is celebrating. Yay, look at you. You're so big. I'm so proud of you. And they want to do it again, you know? So that's, you know, I mean, when we're talking about histrionic personality disorder, You know, we're talking about a need for attention that was not met adequately. And at one age, it might look appropriate. In your 30s, in your 40s, it no longer looks appropriate. And people are kind of like, I don't know what this is anymore, right? I don't know how to deal with this. Because typically, that high need for attention isn't there in the adult years. Now, also, you know, we talk about avoidant personality disorder. Again, usually with avoidant personalities... Again, a lot of trauma, you know, kind of organized a lot like where they just kind of internalized a lot of the shame. And so they're just avoidant of people getting too close. They're avoidant, you know, a little bit different than avoidant attachment style. There's some similarities, but we're talking out of personality disorder and not necessarily an attachment style. And so, you know, they might... Uh, be underachievers. They might be under earners where there's just some avoidant about trying too hard because they don't know if they're going to be able to be successful. And so they just avoid trying. They avoid taking chances. They avoid, you know, going for the thing that they want. So, I mean, all of these, I'm doing a very brief uh, summary of them. I'm not in any way expecting that you understand these personality disorders inside and out by my summary. But I'm just talking about how when that self is not developed or the foundation is not laid for that self to be developed, here's some of the ways that can go awry and can go awry in some pretty extreme ways. Now, another one I would say is narcissistic personality disorder. Now, one of the um, podcasts I listen to, Psychology in Seattle, he works more so with 
borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, or has in his career. I don't know that he still sees clients, but has in his career, right? And one of the things he has talked about when he talks about narcissistic personality disorder that I like the way that he phrased this. He talks about how, you know, where like borderline and histrionic and avoidant that they do not have a sense of self, a functional sense of self. And the distress or the darkness that comes with that awareness is the disorder. He says, you know, with narcissistic personality disorder, they don't necessarily have that awareness of a lack of self and instead have tricked themselves into believing that the narcissistic image that they've created is actually the self. So still fragile, right? That's not an actual functional sense of self, but they're not necessarily aware that they don't have a sense of self. So all of those are rooted in attachment injuries. They're rooted in trauma and usually relational trauma. And then we have addiction. So when I'm working, I I mean, that's kind of been my area of expertise in my career, over my career. And so when I'm working with addicts, I will say, I think for most addicts, what they arrive at the young adult years with is a sense of self that is intertwined with some pretty negative beliefs about themselves, which is not a functional sense of self. And if we arrive at the young adult years with a sense of self that we believe is somehow inherently flawed, bad, wrong, sick, twisted, whatever, that's not going to bring a lot of good experiences into our life, right? And we might try to marry out of that or, you know, get educated and career-wise, you know, maybe move out of that sense of self that is negative. But overall, that negative sense of self will continue to eke out in ways that we can't contain or we can't control. And that will be the addiction pieces, right? We start to live a double life or we start to do things to numb or to escape the pain of the beliefs that we are not worthy. We're not valuable. We're not good people. So that's where I see, you know, addiction coming on board or addiction kind of manifesting that sense of self that is not going to be functional. And so again, part of recovery is actually recovering a sense of self that isn't shrouded in negative core beliefs and impaired thinking. Now, in addition to some of those, you know, actual mental health diagnoses or those disorders that can happen when we did not get what we needed to in order to develop a functional sense of self, I think we can look around and we can see all sorts of different substitutions for self, right? And and I will say, I mean, I think there are a whole lot of substitutions for the self. If we don't have a sense of self, there are a lot of things that can personifying some of them uh, by giving them a voice and saying that they want to be like, hey, I'll function as a sense of self. And maybe it works for a couple of decades, right? But we're not supposed to have a sense of self that is a substitution for actually developing a sense of self. You know, so I think some of the common substitutions of self can be religion. Just do A, B, C, and D, obedient, do these things, and that's yourself, and that's good because we say it's good. And and if we don't have a self on board, a functional sense of self on board, and we choose to be part of a religion, the likelihood of the religion substituting in for the self goes up, right? Because we don't have a sense of self to meet the religious doctrine or the religious teachings and say, what does that look like for me? How does that look in my life or for me as a person, right? I understand the teaching, but what does that look like for me? Because we all can't be the same in the religion. Maybe we have some common and shared beliefs, but we're also individuals. And so that's going to look different. And so I think I've said before, I am not religiously affiliated in my life and don't really ever plan to be. But I am a firm believer that I think religions are better served when the members on the pews have a functional sense of self and then are choosing to 
be part of whatever that religion is. I think that's going to work out better. Now, we also have, I mean, we literally talk about identity politics. And politics should never be used as a substitution for self. But we see that happening all around us. And not just in this country, but in other countries. We see um, your political identity stepping in and being a substitution for self. We can use our work or our career as a substitution for self. Our degrees, our education, our success in life, that can also be used as a substitute for self. There's research being done lately on happiness, right? And one of the things that we're looking at uh, when we're researching happiness, one of the things that the research is telling us, right, is that happiness and socially happy has a lot to do with what we have. And not just what we have, but is it something that is deemed valuable, right? So if I have a bike as a kid, but my bike gets made fun of, then I would not really see that as something valuable because the whole or the group, whatever that is that I'm a part of, right, is saying, yes, you have a bike, but it's not a valuable bike. Nobody wants to ride your bike. Nobody's asking to trade bikes with you for the day or something like that. So we know that part of our happiness has to do with having things and not just having anything, but having things that are deemed to matter. And, you know, that can lead to a lot of problems if there is not a self on board that says, hey, that's enough, or I don't really need more to make me a good person or to make me have value because I already have value. It's already in me, right? Sometimes I'll talk with clients about being value, which is why that usually puts it at such a young age when that is developed. Like I have value simply because I am. Simply in being, in being me, I have value. And one of the reasons we know that develops so young is because it has to precede performance value. It has to precede being able to do things, right? So that the things that we do are simply a way of we're manifesting that being value. And that performance value would be nothing without being value. But oftentimes I think we skip over or we minimize or we don't talk about the being value. And instead we overemphasize performance value. So if I'm using having things, buying nice things as a substitution for myself, that can create an insatiable appetite for nice things and to have other people see that I have nice things. And where does that end, right? When is that enough? And am I over consuming things as a way of making up for the fact that I don't have a functional sense of self on board? I've had clients explain to me, right, that like one of the ways that they see themselves is that I, I put other people above myself. And that's just such a telling trait about who I am as a person, right? And, and maybe that is a manifestation of an authentic self, but that can also, I think we can develop a codependent self as a substitution for a solid sense of self or a functional sense of self. You know, I've also had, I had a client who would often describe himself as a hard ass, like I'm just a hard ass. And that was a substitution for self, right? Like you're not like, that's not typically how we're born. That's not how anybody comes genetically. But that says something to me about the experiences that you have had and your best way to cope because of those experiences, right? Was to develop that persona or that, that substitution for self. Now you may have heard it's been on, uh, several talk shows. I'm never home in the day. And so, I mean, I see clips and stuff online, but I'm just not, I've never really been uh, a watcher of daytime television, but I've seen, you know, one of our fellow CSAT, one of the members of our CSAT community has a book that came out. I think it came out mid to end of 2020. So it's been out a couple of years at this point. And I know she was working on it and writing it for, and even talking about writing it for several years before that. And her book is called Mother Hunger. 
And so you might have heard, I know it was on the red table and Jada Pinkett Smith and her mother and Jada's daughter had Kelly McDaniel, she's the author, had her on. And we're kind of talking about that intergenerational female trauma that they'd experienced and talking about her book, Mother Hunger. And then recently she's been on some programs with Jeanette McCurdy and her book that recently came out, I'm Glad My Mother Died. And again, talking about mother hunger and its impact on children. And I want to just share a little bit about how Kelly describes, how Kelly herself summarizes or writes about mother hunger. And this is a short description of mother hunger taken from one of her newsletters, I think it was, that I, that I got it sent out on. So she says this, quote, how can something as necessary and natural as love get twisted into addictive hell? Probing this paradox led me to the creation of mother hunger. The term almost speaks for itself. Like cancer, mother hunger invisibly eats away your insides, slowly digesting any strength, dignity, or agency you've gathered. Hunger pains need relief. Food, sex, romance, work, alcohol, something to numb the inner longing for love that's missing. Mothers provide daughters with three important developmental needs. Nurturing, protection, and guidance. If any one of these three is missing, a daughter grows up with an achy loneliness that distorts her self-concept and capacity for healthy relationships. I call this mother hunger. Well-meaning mothers regularly miss one of these critical developmental needs when raising their daughters. Since most women are impacted by the toxic stress of patriarchy, a mother can't give her daughter what she doesn't have. A daughter learns to love the way her mother loves her and mother hunger is passed intergenerationally between women. For example, perhaps your mother was loving, cuddly, and playful. You felt her love and enjoyed her affection, but she had difficulty making decisions, managing her moods, and you often felt confused or worried about her. You learned that you couldn't look to her for solutions or guidance. As an adult, you wrestle with anxiety and confusion, often feeling younger than your age. You find powerful people irresistible. Or let's say you grew up inspired by your mother. You felt proud of her hard work or her style, but she didn't protect you from your father's rage. Routinely, you were left alone in terror. Since your mother was busy or distracted, you learned not to burden her, quietly building a fortress around your heart. As an adult, people may experience you as fierce and strong, but deep inside, you shiver with insecurity and fear. She continues, mother hunger exists on a spectrum and names the invisible wound that emerges from missing comfort or safety or guidance from your mother. If you missed all three and your mother was abusive, I call this third degree mother hunger. Third degree mother hunger feels like a sense of homelessness, a burning need for addiction and a haunting confusion about your basic needs and desires. Third degree mother hunger is essentially disorganized attachment and shares symptoms with bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, or major depressive disorder. But mother hunger isn't pathology or a disorder. It's an injury, an invisible wound that hides from awareness until you find a name. Now, what we also know is there's a lot of single moms raising sons. And as a woman, I can appreciate that Kelly is looking at women, intergenerational trauma past along the female line, how mothering connects daughters to their lives or doesn't, and just that wounding that happens for females. And, and, you know, her book prior to this one coming out was Ready to Heal. And in that book, it's, you know, for female sex and love addicts. She writes it for female sex and love addicts. Now I've had some of my male clients who are dealing with sex addiction read that book. I've read paragraphs out of that book that I think also apply to many of my male clients. And I don't know that they would ever know that it was actually a book written for females and she was looking at females. And so I can appreciate her looking through the female lens because I just don't think there is enough research being done around just women. And we know that women are raising the majority of children out there. Now that doesn't mean that fathers are not an important role. And I think we need to look at how fathers can support that nurturing, that protection, and that guidance, or how moms and dads can be on two 
opposite sides where the children need protection from mom and dad, right? Or from their the conflict that erupts into violence. So I think there's ways of looking at that. I don't think it applies to just females. I believe I was having a conversation with Kelly once. I don't think it was in a podcast episode or anything like that. And I think she told me like it was maybe embarrassing to her or something like that many years after she had written uh, her book, Ready to Heal, that she didn't realize her term mother hunger or what she was addressing in her book, Ready to Heal, that many men resonated with it as well. So I think Kelly also is aware that men resonate with her work and it makes sense to me. I mean, we all needed mothering, right? I tell a lot of my clients, I don't think that mothering belongs to a gender. I think it is a pretty high intensely demanding thing that young children require. And the more people who can be involved in mothering in ways that provide nurturing, protection, and guidance, I think the better off we all are. And so, you know, I I say that little caveat just because I don't want, if you're a male, I don't want you to be like, oh, this doesn't apply to me because I think it does. And like I said, many of our men were raised as boys largely by mom and had absent dads or dads who scared them. And so I think we have to look at and and understand if you're a male listening to this, that this also has an impact on you and you've got some work to do around that. Now, in wrapping up this episode, I wanted to share with you, I was listening several months ago to a podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, and he was interviewing Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale and uh, dozens, I think 17 or something like that, other books. And then I think she's got several essays out. She's written a lot, but she's probably best known for her book, The Handmaid's Tale, which is on Hulu and has been, I think, four seasons. Maybe the fifth one actually starts next. No, this week, I think, actually. So he was interviewing her and they were talking about the title of the show was On Stories, Deception, and the Bible. So, you know, he was just interviewing her. He's a great interviewer. If you haven't listened to any of his podcast episodes, there are some really great ones. He also interviews Bessel van der Kolk. I shared that with our men's group uh, when that one came out. And, you know, many of the men were like, I'm listening to this multiple times because there's just so much in this episode, which I agree with, which is why I shared it. And so in this podcast episode, they were talking about, and I even printed out the transcript because I was like, wait, she's not mentioning the name of this book. And I've read a couple of books thinking, oh, this might be the book she was talking about. I haven't yet, I don't think, found the book that she was talking about. And she did not mention the title of her book. She mentioned what it was about, right? And then Ezra Klein talked about a book he had read. He mentioned it by title. Anyway, so I'm just going to read this bit from the transcript because I think it's so important to what we're talking about in this series on developing a functional sense of self. So she was talking about, you know, many of her stories talk about, you know, kind of this utopian society that is actually an authoritarian society or something like that. She kind of looks at like the dark side of utopian And in this interview, she talks about like utopian experiments. They just had, they've never worked. I don't think they're going to work. But I think she was asked this question by Ezra, what makes people more open to authoritarianism? And she answers by saying this, quote, so we've had a lot of thinking along those lines. People interested in genetics say there's a genetic component. People interested in cultures say there's a cultural component. She says, there's a very interesting book from years ago that I read which was by a man who as a child, being Jewish, had been rescued and hidden in the Netherlands. I think I found another book where a five-year-old boy was hidden in the Netherlands. A five-year-old Jewish boy was hidden in the Netherlands. I haven't started reading that book yet, but I, it might be that one. So anyway, she says, it's a very interesting book from years ago that I read was by a man who as a child, being Jewish, had been rescued and hidden in the Netherlands. And when he grew up, He was tortured by the question, what made those people do that? Why did they do that? They're risking their own lives to save mine. Why did they? So he went back and he interviewed a number of people who had rescued children under those circumstances. And he wanted to know, were you religious? No, was not religious. 
he wanted to know like what are the common denominators among these people who risk their lives in order to save a child, right? So was it a, re- a common religious belief that they held? No, some of them were religious, but others weren't. He said, was it a political ideation? Well, others, it was political. Others, some of them were left, some of them were right. Some of them didn't have any politics particularly. So what was it? She says, Margaret Atwood continues. And the only thing that he could conclude was that to have done otherwise would have violated their idea of who they were. So she says, but where did they get that idea of who they were? She says, that's another question in which he did not, the author did not pursue. But she says, where do you get that idea of who you were? Where do you get that? And she kind of continues and says, I, I don't know. That's something we don't know. Well, I, I think we need to start wrestling as communities, as families, as people in our relationships. We need to start wrestling with who am I, right? We need to start figuring out what is that that made those people risk their own lives, right? In order to save this child or many children or one child rather than turning them over to the Nazis, rather than turning them over to the German police. And simply the reason they did that was because to do so, to do otherwise, would have betrayed who they knew themselves to be. Well, that's a pretty functional sense of self. That's a pretty strong sense of self that says, I act from that place of who I am. And I don't violate that. I don't betray that. Even at risk to my safety, even at risk to my comfort, I don't betray who I know myself to be. We need more of that. And so that's one of the things I want to talk about as we evolve this series. I want to talk about who are we and how do we develop that sense of self that actually works in a way to make our world a better place and a more beautiful place, a place where it is safer and there's more meaningful connection with people who maybe we didn't know before. Maybe they don't seem to be very much like us, but we start to have connections because that is just part of who I know myself to be. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time. Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.